Good morning, everybody. My name is Naomi, and I'll be reading our Bible passage for today, um, which comes from Exodus chapter 2, verses 11 to 25. One day, after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Looking this way and that, and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. The next day he went out and saw the two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, Why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, What I did must have become known. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. Now a priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and fill the troughs to water their father's flock. Some shepherds came along and drove them away, but Moses got up and came to their rescue and watered their flock. When the girls returned to rule their father, he asked them, Why have you returned so early today? They answered, An Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. And where is he? Rule asked his daughters. Why did you leave him? Invite him to have something to eat. Moses agreed to stay with the man who gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. Zipporah gave birth to a son, and Moses gave, named him Gershom, saying, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and they cried for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. Hi everyone, thank you for tuning in online again to watch us for the last week before we get to meet back in person. Yes, that's right, if you haven't heard, July 26th, Sunday, July 26th, we'll be back here where I'm at the moment in the Padere Chapel, able to meet and gather as the people of God, all for God's glory, to be a Jesus-shaped community. I do hope you can make it. If you've been watching online for some time, uh, please come. We'd love to meet you and get to know you. For our regulars who have been part of our church community for a number of years, um, I'm looking forward to saying hello to you, to meeting you. Um, we've got all our COVID safe practices up to, up to date. We're going to keep physical distancing in the pews. Um, you'll see some videos about this after church today uh, and find out more, especially three ways that you can be coming back. How can you prepare yourself and your family to come back well into church? Three ways, and we'll talk about them a little bit later today. But before we get there, uh, let's get back into God's Word. We're going to look at Exodus chapter 2, verse 11 to 25. And as we do that today, I want you to think about green bananas. Yes, green bananas. You see, today, in Exodus 2, verse 11 to 25, we're going to meet the God who hears and knows his people's pain, who understands their plight and will hear and answer their cry. But the challenge before us, though, is that the person God uses to answer this call He's running to his own agenda. He's a tad over-eager, bit like my green banana here, not quite ripe enough yet. And that's Moses. You see, Moses in chapter 2, verse 11, he thinks he's ready to redeem God's people. But he's too green according to God's agenda. And unless Moses waits for God's timing, it'll look like the Exodus is all about Moses and not God and not God's glory. It'll make Moses the hero instead of God being the hero. And no one's immune from that either, by the way. Moses isn't immune from it. Jesus, when he was around and alive on earth, 
wasn't immune from it. And you and me aren't immune to that either. Running ahead, too green, not following God's will, God's way. And our challenge is to live according to God's will, God's agenda, not our own in this life. And the hope we have is that there was one who did that. Not Moses, but one who perfectly obeyed the will of God, acted on God's timing, God's way. Who wasn't a green banana, who does truly rescue us and redeem us back into God's presence, who realigns us to God's will and God's glory. We'll get there. So that's where we're heading today. Please follow along on your outline. It's on the screen in the notes section, or you can download it from our hub. I do hope you follow along with us. A couple of points to get through. I'm going to see the thing Moses did. We'll see the other thing Moses did. And then we'll see the thing that God does best. So let's begin in chapter 2, verse 11. And right away, we notice here that we skip over any details as to what life in the palace would have been like for young Moses in the Egyptian system. We haven't a clue. But we know in some way, somehow, he did know all about his people, his history. Maybe he kept in contact with his mum or his sister. Or maybe Pharaoh's daughter taught him that he was a Hebrew. We don't know. But thanks to Acts chapter 7, verse 23 in the New Testament, we learn that Moses is 40 years old when we pick up the story today. And what we're immediately aware of is that Moses has grown up an Egyptian. Meaning, Moses is not like the rest of his people. He's the only one out of his whole Hebrew nation who is not a slave. So what does he do? Well, on this particular day, he goes out to the oppression where his people is taking place. And we learn three things Moses did when he went out. He watched in 2.11. He saw them hard at work. He's carefully thinking about, reflecting, taking in, assessing what's happening to his people here at this time. And then as he's watching, he saw something. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew. It's the same word used in chapter 1, verse 11 to describe Pharaoh's oppressive regime. And it would have been very, very, very common for people to see that in the brick clay fields of Egypt, an Egyptian beating a Hebrew. And Moses saw that. He's seeing firsthand the oppression of his people at its very worst, you see. It's one thing to hear about it, isn't it? But then to go and see something in person, in real life, it takes it to another level. You feel different, don't you? So what does Moses do? He sees, he acts. Well, well, he tries to act anyway, I should say. Acts 7, again, gives us some more details into this. It says, Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. You see, Moses thought right here, this will be the start of God's rescue, God's exodus out of Egypt, out of oppressive slavery. Moses put him there, God sorry, God put Moses there for a reason. He's going to use him now to, to do that. But trouble is, it's not going to go the way Moses thinks it would. So this time he looks again. He looks around to make sure no one's going to see him. And he hits, he strikes the Egyptian, and he actually kills him in the process. And then he looks around again and quickly hides the body so no one else can see that in the sand. So Moses actually committed murder. He was pretty heavy-handed here. Murder's no small thing. Now, he certainly meant to hit the guy, don't get me wrong, but he probably didn't mean to kill the Egyptian, by the way. The next instance of striking the same word comes in the next verse where someone didn't die. So Moses, whatever happened, it led to him hitting and the Egyptian died. Notice too in these few verses that in three verses there are five references to Moses watching, looking, seeing. 
the narrator of Exodus goes to great lengths to emphasize Moses is identifying with the pain of his people. That he is right now confronting and judging the evil that's happening to God's people. That's the motivation for this rescue attempt. This, of course, all these verses, in fact, up to the end of the chapter, are a juxtaposition to verses 23 and 25 when God himself acts in the same way when he looks and sees his people and is concerned about their plight in Egypt too and God begins to rescue them. But, you see, they don't just need to be rescued from a harsh taskmaster. God's people need to be brought into the presence of God himself. And that's why this one murder of one Egyptian would never actually redeem them. Not only was Moses acting like a green banana. Remember, he's not called by God at this point. He has no place or person to bring the redeemed people into because redemption has the other side of it, whereas we're going to be to a new life somewhere. And Moses can't lead them anywhere because God has not called him. Begs the question, okay, Moses, you've done that. What now? And it turns out Moses gets rejected. Look at this. He is rejected. The next day, Moses goes out again and sees two Hebrew men fighting. It's bad enough the Egyptians are oppressing them. Now two Hebrew men are fighting against each other. And Moses sees and he steps in just like he did yesterday. And no doubt Moses thought at this point that the, 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 he'd done the right thing. He'd be congratulated. He'd, he'd mediate between them. And they'd say, thank you for coming, our rescuer. But it doesn't go that way. He is rejected by the very people whom he came to rescue. The man in the wrong bitterly replies to Moses saying, will you kill me just like the Egyptian, you did the Egyptian yesterday in 2 verse 14? They resent his high-handed interference and say to him, who made you the ruler over us? They question him. And that's not what he expect. They didn't want him to be their ruler over them. Now, in terms of God's redemptive story, what's going to happen? This actually, this moment sets up the, a frequent theme in the life of Moses and in the fact of the life of most of God's redeemers in the rest of the Bible. Redeemers are often rejected by the very people they came to save. Something Moses will bump into again and again in the story of Exodus. Because quite frankly, we just don't like the game God plays. We often reject his chosen means of rescue. It still happens today when we talk about Jesus. Often people reject him. Before you were a Christian, I'm sure, some of you even rejected Jesus too, quite vocally. So what happened to Moses? Well, fear grips him. Pharaoh wants him dead. Different kind of fear that Moses has than the midwives had back in chapter 1. They had a fear of God motivating them to faithfulness. Moses was in fear of being found out for what he did. Very different fear here. And so he does what my children do, and I'm sure if you've got kids, you've seen them do as well. When they know they're caught, what do kids often do? They run and hide. And you know, we do it as well. When we're caught, we close the browser, we flip to another screen, we come up with an excuse, we get upset, we get angry when we did the wrong thing, when you're speeding and get caught, when you're looking at your phone while driving and the police catch you red-handed. Well, we try to get out of it too. So Moses runs. His half-baked rescue ended with him traveling 300 kilometers away to the land of Midian. And he sits down at a well. Wells are like ancient supermarkets, cultural hu- uh, hubs where shepherds and wayfarers, townsfolk would meet. <clears throat> natural place for him to go when he got to a new land. Now, these very short verses, very few short verses, they spend 40 years of Moses' life and they reveal 
that Moses is now beginning to identify with the agony, the pain, the plight of his people, foreshadowing the great exodus itself as he leaves Egypt. And it's soon going to happen to his people. And it's here in Midian, this new place, that Moses will meet God, be confronted with the call to redeem and rescue God's people according to God's time, God's way, not his own. There is to be no mistake in this Exodus account that it is God's glory that's going to be upheld. God is the hero, not Moses. You see, God loves to use those whom the world would think can't possibly rescue or redeem a thing. And even as Moses is rejected by God's people, God's grace is still at work, leading him in life. While Moses hasn't a clue, God is on track. The true God is still at work. So don't think about this chapter as so much as a detour in Moses' life, any more than your life has ups and downs and twists and turns and and changes. The emphasis, the focus here actually, is on how Moses needs to wait for God and that he himself is foreshadowing the great exodus. God transported Moses to Midian, not as a detour, not as plan B. This was plan A. This was how God was going to redeem his people through a redeemer who himself needed to be redeemed and called, who tried and failed on his own, who needs to live to identify with the people he's going to rescue and save. And unless Moses can fall away from Pharaoh's courts, he's never going to know what it's like to be oppressed, to be an exile. God, you see, isn't interested in using a fit young 40-year-old Moses running to his own agenda. That's not how he's going to work because Moses needs to rely on God's intervention, not his own. In fact, in another 40 years, when Moses, when God does call Moses, as we'll get to, Moses doesn't want to be the redeemer anymore. So perhaps today, as you reflect on these few short verses, you find yourself a bit like Moses, expelling a lot of energy, trying really, really hard on your own effort, only to realize that you've come to the end of yourself, that life isn't about you, and you've been chasing the wrong glory, the wrong agenda. And perhaps it's just been the wrong time, not God's will according to God's way. It's a good point to ponder. Nextly, let's look at the other thing Moses did. So he gets to the well, and all is not well at the well, so to speak. Some rough shepherds scare off the local priest's seven daughters who take their sheep there for a drink. Moses steps in, as we'd expect him to by this point, and he defends and, and upholds these, these seven women from these rough shepherds, even giving them uh, a drink, what they came for in the first place. You know, even though Moses and people rejected him, the people of Midian don't. They accept him. So much so, he goes back for a meal. Jethro, the father, the, the, the priest there, uh, then says to him, why don't you stay? Moses says, yes, he accepts the invitation. He marries one of these women, one of the priest's daughters. And very soon he has a son called Gershom. It means, I've become a foreigner in a foreign land. So what's the other thing Moses did here? Well, he actually finds a home. He finds a home. Now, there is some ambiguity as to what Moses means by naming his child Gershom. He says, I've become a foreigner in a foreign land. Is Moses referring to Midian, as in, is he a stranger in Midian? Or is he referring to Egypt, as in he's a stranger to Egypt? Various translations you might look up uh, will say something like become 
or have been. So they give a very different sense. So what do we make of that? And why is this the end of Moses' story at this point? Why is this the high point? Well, here's the thing. In light of Moses agreeing to stay, 2.21, getting married, having a child, it seems best to say that Egypt is the foreign land he's referring to and that Midian is his new home. Midian is a home. He's no longer a foreigner. He's found a place of acceptance. And the birth of his son summarizes exactly what's taken place in chapter 2. Moses may have come to, to a land to bring God's people to, but the people aren't there yet. And so we have, as Tim Chester says, people without a land in Egypt, and now we have Moses without a people in the land, because this is the place that God will bring all of his people to through Moses. So what's Moses done? He's finally found a home. He's living in exile. He's finally experiencing somewhat of the plight of his people. And this, wrap it up, is the background to the Exodus event. We've seen the oppression of God's people, the positioning of Moses as a redeemer, his rejection by the people he came to save, his new home in the land of Midian, all set up for God to act. And we see this in the final three short verses as we get to see exactly what God sees. God looks back on the years of oppression. God looks forward to the covenant promise of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob that's still at play. And he looks presently at the death of Pharaoh and the very much alive Moses been in a foreign land. So let's see what God does. Here's the thing that God does in all this. So zoom back to Egypt. God's people are now groaning and crying out in distress as it says in verse 23. Even as Pharaoh dies, Egypt hasn't gotten any easier. And then we learn that their cry, their plight, their plea lands in the ears of their God. The cries of the oppressed are particularly sensitive to God's ears. God takes notice because of his covenant, but also because to mock the poor is to insult their makers, as Proverbs 17, verse 5. You see, slavery and oppression, injustice, evil, racism. It says those made in the image of God aren't good enough, are less than what God made. All of which is to deeply and personally assault God himself. And so you see, God was listening to them. But God was not yet in the midst of them. It's a key theme in Exodus. God is going to make his home, his dwelling, among his people. But right now, at this point in history, he hadn't done that. Could also be said, very rightly, I think, why did God wait so long? Why did he have to wait so long for them in oppression and pain before he acted? But I think the answer to that is what if in the silence God is actually listening? What if the silence means God is listening? What if God was silent that he might listen and hear his people's cries and groans? And in the silence, what if God is working? They just can't see it. After all, they went from 70 people to now a million. Not only did their cry go up to God, but we learn in verses 24 and 25 that God heard and God remembered. That is, God paid attention. He was listening in the silence. He heard it all. And he remembers his covenant. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all of that still at play. So God looked, like Moses did when he saw the oppression of his people at the start of the chapter. He looked down and he knew. Now, God remembering a God knowing is not implying that he forgot or that he changed his mind, you see. The idea is that God's bringing something to mind in such a way that's going to cause him to act. So you see, God hasn't forgotten. 
but he's also not work, working to their agenda either. God is absolutely free, not constrained by others. And that puts him in the best place to hear and see and do something about it, right? And because the covenant is still being outworked, even difficult times, they can have hope that God will come good on his promise and hear their cries. You see, this hope in God's absolute freedom for God to act it himself, for God to work to his agenda, not the one I want him to do, means he's free to hear and listen, to act and respond. Not constrained, not limited by Moses' ability or being perfect or Israel's uh, being able to save themselves, you see. God's straight line for his purpose is often full of twists and turns for us. What I'm saying here is that God cares about justice and compassion and his people. He wants his people to live under his loving rule and care and he will make sure that happens. Absolutely. Because we know God is concerned, it says. And he's about to initiate actions that would lead to this personal involvement with his people through Moses. And this is what Exodus 1 and 2 does, you see. It's set up for us the need for redemption out of Egypt, but to be brought under God. It's shown us that God is the one to deliver and redeem the people through a redeemer who is both like and unlike his people. And it will happen on God's agenda, not Moses' agenda. No green bananas in God's economy. And the hope of Exodus 2 is that God sees and hears and knows. And long into the future, all the twists and turns that you and me go through in life, God is at work bringing about the fulfillment of his covenant. And we see that in the Exodus event. Even if we forget, even if we can't see, like Moses, like Israel, God does. God doesn't forget. This trustworthiness, this unchangeableness of God that we see here, it's also called the doctrine of God's immutability. It's one of the greatest reasons for hope in God that a Christian can have, that you can have as well. It means that God's character is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It means he's a solid rock that we can hold on to. It means his purpose doesn't change. It means he guarantees that it will be outworked. God is not becoming. God is not lacking in knowledge about anything. God does not have to learn more or to filter his ideas through a team of people to get their approval before he does something. For God to be immutable gives us the greatest hope in a world full of change and uncertainty. But God, because God is not just a constant, like some mathematical formulas teach us, like, like gravity is a constant, but he's personable and he's wise and he's compassionate and he's kind and he knows and he sees. God does act and does feel in his world in response to what happens. Gravity doesn't care about you, right? And so you see, if we just think about what it would be like if God could change for a moment, We might value this attribute of him more. I mean, if God could change, what if his purpose changed? What if he decided to no longer uphold his covenant, that Jesus is no longer sufficient to save and redeem, or that he's not going to rule over any heaven and earth? Or what if God could change for the worse, become evil? He's so much more powerful than us, then we'd have no hope at all. That's a scary thought. And so we learn here, this unchanging God sees and hears and knows, and he'll act for the good of his people And that's the the rest of Exodus, how God is defining his people by his grace, by his grace. So what can we say about this today? As I thought through about this this week and what's becoming obvious to me as I think about my own life in light of this, 
is that Exodus 2 reminds me and makes me long for a Redeemer who can rescue me, who identifies with me, who operates on God's agenda, not his own. Because often I operate on my agenda thinking it's God's. I'm too quick. I don't think through things as clearly as I should. That's that's me. I want someone who can rescue me from myself and is not a green banana like I am. And Moses may have been like that. I'm definitely one like that at times. I'm sure you are too. But there is one, I think we, that we see here that we long for, who identifies with us and who can redeem us rightly back into God and give us a clear glimpse of his agenda and purpose for our life. And so it would be great if there was one who didn't get afraid, who didn't run to his own plan, who would truly offer justice like Moses tried, who wouldn't just fight the evil around us, but all the evil and sin in that. And Moses, like I said, he was almost that. And he would do a pretty good job, actually, in the coming chapters, as we see. But the hero here that we need isn't Moses, isn't me. The real hero, the one Moses points us to, is Jesus. He is all that and more. He is the greater Moses. He identifies with us, going out of the glories of heaven, not just Egypt. He was born incarnate, son of man and son of God, identifying with all people in our suffering as one of us, as one who knows our affliction. Yet he is God. He can render justice. He can grant forgiveness. Jesus did not flee when confronted with death or evil. And this Jesus follows God's will, God's way at all times. After all, he said, I can do nothing unless the Father directs me. He is the one who knows our true home and how to take us there with him. And the future promise is that God's covenant will be outworked and that he will dwell with man, with his spirit here and now today, and then in a new creation unrestricted. And that is the heart of the Christian faith. There is a humble God who endured evil in order to overcome. And in Jesus, there is someone who came to get us from our slavery of sin to bring us home to himself. As he says in John 14 too, my father's house has many rooms. And in the next verse, I will come again and take you to myself. There I am, you may also be. James Smith commenting on this passage says, grace isn't high speed transport all the way to the end, but the gift of his presence the rest of the way. Which means when we do cry out, even if we don't see an immediate remedy, like God's people here, we're not shouting into an empty void. You know, Jesus wept when he saw the death of Lazarus and the night before he was going to die, he knows what it's like. Do you know that grace? And the question is then, whose agenda in life are you operating on? Are you a bit like a green banana, like I am sometimes? Well, isn't it good that God forgives? God's still God. God doesn't change. God is at work. Maybe you, maybe me, as I reflect on my life, that we need to repent from our over-eagerness, our green banana tendencies, and just wait for the timing of God a little bit more.